Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here's your host, Rob Dalrymple. Today's podcast is from a sermon series I did on the Gospel of Luke. I hope you enjoy. Bibles, open them up to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23. It's page 747 in your pew Bibles as we look at the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross is probably the single most recognized symbol in the world. If I were to put up symbols of other religious, uh, and I was looking at them beforehand, I, I elected not to put them in the middle of this um, presentation, but the symbols of various religious religions and their symbols, some of them you wouldn't even be able to identify. But universally, perhaps, around the world, the cross is a recognized symbol of Christianity. It marks more graves. It's tattooed on more people. It's worn as earrings and necklaces. It adorns buildings. It's used in artwork and homes and elsewhere. Yet in the first, symbol, in the first century, it was a symbol of Roman brutality. The cross served to remind everyone in the Mediterranean world who was in power. And it's not that person. Rome was in power. Luke chapter 23, verse 1. The whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar, and he claims to be a Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked, Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And he said so. Uh, You have said so, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests in the crowd, "I I find no basis for a charge against this man. Verse 5. But they insisted. He stirs up all the people, the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jews was under, the, under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at the time. Now, Pilate, just so you're not, in case you're not aware, Pilate is the, the governor uh, 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 in charge of the region of Judea. It's the southern region of, the, of what we call Israel today, Israel-Palestine. Um, his headquarters were in Caesarea, but Pilate would be in town in Jerusalem whenever there's a major fest, a feast or a festivity going on, and the Feast of Passover would be just such an occasion. So they bring Jesus to Pilate, saying, look, we found this man guilty of claiming to be a king. Now, claiming to be a king is a serious charge. There's only one king, that's Caesar. It's treason. You should have this guy killed. But Pilate doesn't seem to want to have anything to do with Jesus. He seems to be trying to get out of this. He's like, look, you know, are you a king? Jesus says, well, you you know, you said it yourself. And and Pilate goes, look, I don't find this guy guilty of anything. So then he finds out that Jesus is actually from Galilee. Now, the northern region of Galilee was under the the jurisdiction of a man named Herod, the, the son of Herod the Great. And so Pilate thinks, well, I know what I can do. I'll pass him off to Herod. Now, you're, you're Herod's problem. So Jesus goes off to Herod. And Herod starts inquiring about Jesus, but Herod is the same one who had John the Baptist killed, if you remember that story. And Herod had heard about Jesus, and he's like, well, maybe I get to see a miracle or something. But Jesus refuses to say anything to Herod. He does nothing before Herod. So Herod has him mocked and beaten a little bit. His his men have a a, a purple robe put on Jesus, and he sends him back to Pilate. We'll pick up the story now in verse 13. Verse 13, Pilate called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people. And he said to them, you brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion, but I've examined him in your presence, and I have found no basis for charges against him. Neither has Herod, 
for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. Now, if you don't catch the irony there, he's done nothing deserving death, but I'll punish him anyways. And then I'll release him. Maybe the idea was, I'll punish him and maybe that'll make you happy. And then I'll have him released. Verse 18. But the whole crowd shouted, away with this man! Release Barabbas to us! Now, Barabbas had been thrown into prison for insurrection in the city and for murder. Now, here's the interesting part about Barabbas. Barabbas, is, there's no way in the world that this is the man's name. Bar, Abba, are two Aramaic words that mean son of a father. Who's going to name their kid Bar, Abba? His name is Barabbas, the son of a father. And perhaps the gospel writers are showing us the irony. Who do you want released? A son of a father or the son of the Father. The, the gospel writers probably want us to, to see this irony that's going on. Verse 20 now. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time he spoke to them. Why? What crime has this man committed? I have found him, in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore I'll have him punished and then release him. With loud shouts, they insistent, insistently demanded that he be crucified. And their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided, decided to grant their, their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and for murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered, the Jesus, and, and surrendered Jesus to their will. Three times Pilate tries to have Jesus released. I, I find no guilt in this man. What evil has he done, Pilate says. I'll have him beaten, and, then I'll, and, then, and that'll be good enough. But no, they asked for a man, Barabbas, who was guilty of insurrection. Barabbas was likely what, what's called a... a, 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 a I, I'm, I'm sorry, the foreign languages. I, I have to think of the English word right now. Um, a, a lestes, a, a robber, a murderer, a, a, a dagger man. That's the word I wanted. Uh, he, he was known for uh, th this group of people that, that went around... Uh, it's basically called terrorism today. They would go around and kill people. In, in crowds, uh, sakari is the, is the Greek word, uh, uh, they kill people in crowds and then they drop the knife and walk away and, the, and no one would know who did it. Right? The Roman occupation needs to be opposed is what uh, the sakari believed. Uh, we need to not only oppose Roman occupation, we need to do everything we can. To, so they want this guy guilty of murder released. The problem with releasing him is those guys get all of us in trouble. When you go kill a Roman, Rome punishes all of us. We don't like you guys. But they like him more than Jesus. We want Barabbas released. Now, Luke omits what transpires next, and that is Jesus is beaten and scourged. It appears that he's beaten and scourged on two different occasions. One, Pilate has him beaten and bloodied and brought out. The Gospel of John tells us that Pilate has him brought out and says, this is the man. Is this good enough? And they say, no, crucify him, crucify him anyways. And then Pilate has him turned over to be crucified, which means he's going to be beaten again. If you've seen the movie The Passion, which came out a number of years ago, uh, Mel Gibson's attempt at, at uh, uh, recreating, it does a better job than any other movie out there depicting the violence of, of, of the crucifixion of Jesus. In fact, it's so violent that it's rated R. But it honestly doesn't do enough. 
the violence that Jesus underwent was far greater than even the passion d- depicts. And one of the things that happens in the passion, the passion is they have both the beatings taking place at the same time, which wouldn't have happened. Pilate had him beaten once, said, is this good enough? No, crucify him anyway. Then he says, okay. And he hands Jesus over to be, to be crucified. But handing him over to be crucified means he's going to be scourged and whipped with, with, a, with a whip that's going to just tear up his flesh and he's going to be blooded and beaten. and uh, it, it's, it's disgusting. And the man who's doing the beatings is an executioner. Which means while they're doing the beatings, if they scourge you too much and you die, the guy's not in trouble. He's an executioner. I just, sorry, one less cross today, Horace. We don't need that one. This guy's already dead. The job of the, execu- of the guy doing the beatings was to get him as near death as possible without killing him. But if they kill him, no big deal. And if you see in the movie The Passion, they, they count in Latin, right? One, two, three. There's this old understanding that when a person's beating, they have to have 39 scourges. Because the Jewish law says you can't whip a man more than 40 times. And so the Jews, would, when they beat somebody, they would beat him 39 times lest they miscounted. And they don't want to violate God's law. But you've got to remember, the Jews aren't beating him. The Romans are beating him. They're not counting, folks. There's no 39 lashes happening here. There's as many lashes as the executioner wants to give him. Until he thinks he's as near. He, he can't. If I give him one more, he'll die. No, let's put him on the cross. Now he's good. They're going to beat him as near death as possible without killing him. I lost my... Uh, all right, I lost my screen. All right. You lost both. All right, let me know when you got it, James. All right, I'm going to continue reading. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to continue in verse 32. Luke 23, verse 32. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others, let let him save himself. If he's God's Messiah, the chosen one, verse 38. There was a written notice above his head that said, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Are you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him, saying, Don't you fear God? Since you are under the same sentence, we're punished justly, for we're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man's done done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, Truly, I say to you today, you'll be with me in paradise. Verse 44. Now it was about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. For the sun stopped shining, and the curtains of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this man, this was a righteous man. The place of the crucifixion is often called the skull. and In Greek and Aramaic, it's called Golgotha. In Latin, it's called Calvary. Uh, likely the name was because that's where the bones of all the victims were at. Uh, Rome would just take the victims' bodies and just throw them into a mass pit, and likely this, the place of the crucifixion is just littered with all these bones. Crucifixion uh, was a Roman invention. A Roman, uh, uh, Rome's per- Roman had per- Romans had perfected it. They didn't invent it. It goes back as far as we know to even to the Assyrians hundreds of years even before the Romans. 
but the Romans had perfected it. The purpose of crucifying victims was to, was to persuade others to not do whatever that person did. Thank you, James. All right, let me see if I can connect. All right, need the password. All right, unable to connect. Type again. I just have a lot of scriptures I want to show you, so I want to bring them up. Sorry for this technical delay. We'll be right back with this service in just a moment. There we go. All right, I'm down. Yeah, I am. Thank you. I'm down right. That's the last one we just read. Thank you. All right, there we go. All right. Uh, the purpose was to, was to persuade others from not being in rebellion. Victims of the crucifixion, as I mentioned already, were beaten severely uh, before even beginning the journey to the cross. Uh, the, the stories of Jesus, uh, uh, the victims carrying their cross, they probably would be carrying their cross bar. Uh, the wood was expensive, and the Romans wanted to preserve it, so the, the upright beam was probably already at the site. They just kept using the upright beam over and over and over again. So the victim would carry his own cross bar, about a 100-pound piece of wood uh, there. And of course, the, the biblical story is that Jesus is so fatigued which tells us how severely he was beaten. He was so fatigued he couldn't even carry his own crossbar. So Simon of Cyrene, a North African, uh, uh, is there watching what's going on, and he carries Jesus' crossbar for him. Another indication as to how severely Jesus is beaten is he says, I'm thirsty in the Gospel of John. But most likely what's happened is all of his bodily fluids are going to, to the reproduction of blood. He's lost so much blood from the beating that even that, that he, his mouth is drying up because every bodily fluid system is going to reproducing blood because he's bleeding to death. Victims were crucified near the main road. That way anybody going inside the town and outside the town are going to see what this guy, who this guy is and what's going on to him. They're going to be agonizing and, and moaning and groaning and crying out. Uh, the suffering would last for days. Victims could die two or three days later. Most often, victims died by suffocation. They simply are so fatigued they can't breathe any longer. The Jewish world, however, had a couple scruples that the Romans acknowledged. One of the things that the Romans would also do is they crucify you naked. They want to bring the utmost shame upon you. Well, that was too offensive to the Jewish people, and most likely, Jesus and other crucified victims in Jerusalem would have had at least a, lo a loincloth on. But they also had a provision in the Old Testament law that says that if anyone's hung on a tree overnight, the land is cursed. The Old Testament says that if you're hung, hung on a tree, you're under God's curse, but if you're hung on a tree overnight, the land is cursed. So the Jews went to the Romans and said, hey, look, you can crucify these people, that's up to you, we can't stop that. But you can't let them stay overnight because our scriptures tell us that we'll all be under God's curse. So the Jews went to the Romans and said, you've got to get them down before nightfall. So according to the biblical stories, the Roman soldiers went up to the victims to, to break their legs. Breaking their legs, their shin bones, means that they can no longer push up and get air out and they die by suffocation. Jesus, upon coming to Jesus, he's already dead. They pierce his side to see if he really is dead, most likely thrusting a sword through his, uh, his right side up into his heart. And according, according to the Gospel of John, blood and water flows out. Medically speaking, that indicates he's had a heart attack. Spiritually speaking, he's a source of living water. Come to me, all you who are weary, 
and I will give you rest. Right? I am the source of water. You should have asked me, he tells the woman at the well in John 4, and I'd give you living water, because out of me shall flow rivers of living water. Roman victims were uh, uh, nailed. This is actually uh, um, a, a, a nail in an ankle bone of a man who was buried in a private tomb about 50 B.C. in the, the city of Jerusalem. You can see the end of the nail is, is kind of hooked. What appears to have happened is when the Romans nailed him to the cross, and we suspect that he was nailed like this, straddling the cross, with the nails coming in on, on his right and on his left and through his ankles in, in, into the crossbar, in, into the uh, upright beam. Uh, the, apparently when they crucified this guy and the nail went through his ankle, it hit a knot in the beam and it hooked the end, of the, uh, the end of the nail. And so when they went to take it out, they couldn't get the nail out. So they just took the entire nail and the ankle with it. Uh, they collected his bones and he was buried in a private tomb. The man's name was Johanan, John. Roman citizens, a, a famous man named Cicero, a Roman order and lawyer, uh, lawyer said, the very mention of the cross should be so far removed, not only from a Roman citizen's body, but from his mind, his eyes, and his ears. It's against the law to crucify a Roman citizen. And Cicero said, you shouldn't even think of the idea that you, have, you would have to die by crucifixion. It's so disgusting and torturous of, of, of an event. Don't even let it come to your mind that some, such might, might happen to you, O Roman citizens. In fact, the Latin word was created out of the word excruciating, which literally means out of the cross. They had no word to describe how terribly suffering a person was undergoing by crucifixion. And it's here that we stop. As I said earlier, I did this. It's my fault that Jesus suffered like this. It's your fault. It's our fault. It's for you and for me that he died. What does this mean for us today? Let me throw a couple points out. Number one, the cross was surely Jesus' coronation as king. There, there's some segments of Christian theology that suggest that Jesus' first coming was to be the dying Messiah and that his second coming is to be the king. And I would say, I'm sorry, but that's radically mistaken because we cannot separate the two events. His dying on the cross was the moment in which he was crowned the king. The hour has come. For the Son of Man to be lifted up, Jesus says in the Gospel of John. It's his crowning moment, so to speak. He's riding into a cult six days earlier, five days earlier, proclaiming himself to be the king of the Jews. The people hail him as the Messiah, spread their garments on the roadside, and they sing Psalm 118, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, a psalm that befits the coming of a king. Psalm 118 was used when, when people were, were, were enthroned to be the kings. They they dressed him in purple and mocked him as the king of the Jews. The gospel writers are not telling us these things as though they're incidental facts that are of irrelevance. The gospel writers are telling us these things because they want us to see the crowning of Jesus was the moment on the cross. Hail, king of the Jews! His name above his head said, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. He's wearing a crown of thorns. The gospels are, are emphatic. This is the moment when God became king. And we go, whoa, what does that mean? 
Now on your outlines, I've got a, a second point. I'm going to skip down to the third point, and then I'll go back to the second point. The third point is this. The Bible is a love story. The Bible is a love story. It's a, it's a story of God creating his humanity to be in his image and reflect his glory to make him known. And then we slapped him in the face and said, don't need you. We'll follow our own rules. And God loves us so much, he says, here's what I'll do. I'll give you hope. I'll give you a chance. I'll give you a future. I'll give you grace. I'll send my son and he'll suffer for you that you might be relieved and redeemed from your suffering. John 15, verse 13 says, Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for his friends. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down their life for their friends. Yet, Romans 5, 8 says that God demonstrates his own love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The greatest love is to lay down your life for your friends, but Jesus laid down his life for us when we were his enemies. Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. 1 Peter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed. Romans 5, verses 5 and 6. If we've been united with him in his death, uh, in death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him and so, that the body, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Romans 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ suffered so that we could be redeemed from death through resurrection. I did that. You did that. We did that. But he did it voluntarily while we were his enemies so that we can be redeemed. You know, there's, there's this question that's common, commonly raised by, non, by, by, by people who don't follow Christ. Why does God allow so much evil and suffering in the world? One of the most common questions out there. How could a loving God allow all this evil? And the answer is, and there's multiple answers. Number one is, by the way, it's our fault. Why are we blaming him? We did it. The world that we see in the evil and suffering in this world is, is that what we brought to the world, not what he brought. God allows it, but at the same time, here's the answer, and that's this. God entered our suffering that we could be freed from it, that we could be redeemed from it. Greater love has no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends, but Jesus laid down his life for us while we were his enemies. The third point, which goes back to the second point in your notes, then is this. The suffering of Christ is the model for us. The suffering of Christ is the model for us. Last week, we looked at Luke 22, where Jesus tells the disciples, I'm making you kings and priests. I'm giving you a kingdom over the 12 tribes of Israel. You're going to rule. Revelation chapter 1, Revelation chapter 5. We are kings and priests to our God. But how do you become kings in Jesus' in Jesus's kingdom? And the answer is the same way he did. By the cross. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. 
and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Mark 8, verse 34, perhaps one of the most important verses in Scripture. He called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself and take up their cross and follow me. Cross-bearing is not just what Jesus did for us, but what Jesus calls us to do for one another. Matthew 10, verse 38 says it even more harshly. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Galatians 2, verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Philippians, I think this is chapter 3. I think I have 2 on the slide, but it should be Philippians 3. Philippians 3, verses 3 through 8. I'm sorry, no, it is. This is Philippians 2. I'm sorry. The next one's Philippians 3. Philippians 2, verses 3 through 8. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with, uh, with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. In your relationship with others, have the same mindset that was in Christ Jesus, who, although he was God, he humbled himself and became a man. And then he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. I want to know Christ, Paul says. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and to participate in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. We kind of look at something like that and go, I think you're a little wacko there, Paul. I want to know Christ. Okay, we're also amen to that. And I want to know the power of his resurrection. Yeah, amen with that. And to participate in his sufferings. Maybe not that one. I'm good with the power of his resurrection. I'm not sure about participating in his sufferings. And becoming like him in his death? No. I've seen the movie The Passion. It's rated R for a reason. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 16. Brothers, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though something strange were happening to you. But to the, to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So that also at the time, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you're reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or troublesome meddler. But if you, anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. We started this series back in January, and we, began this, we titled the series, Who is This Man? Early on in our study of the Gospel of Luke, we began to be challenged by the teachings of Jesus. Give, and don't expect anything in return. And the upside-down nature of the kingdom, if you want to be in my kingdom first, then great, you've got to be last. The, the, the least will be the greatest of all. And, he, and he's, he's overthrowing culture and and, and, and honor and shame, and, and, and he's, he's teaching us what humility and what love and, and, and what all this. And then we, we stop and go, who is this guy? 
amazingly, a man who dies by Roman crucifixion, who's crucified, I mean, I, I just can't imagine if you're Paul or Peter or Mary or, or any, you know, Priscilla, and you're walking around the Roman world, and, and you go into a Roman city, and you try to say, let me tell you about this Jewish guy. Okay, stop right there. I don't want to hear it. No, no, I, I got to go on. He died by Roman crucifixion. You're like, what? Yeah, yeah. They, well, they said that he was guilty of treason. But, but he, he really, well, what? How they get, by crucifixion. What? I mean, how and why would anybody keep listening? Who's going to follow this guy? Yet no one in the history of the world has had an impact like Jesus. For 20 minutes, we've been discussing the death of a convicted criminal. And yet millions of people around the world today assemble to worship that person. Doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. When we think of religious leaders and these people who start all these cultic groups and they make these radical claims, uh, we, we look at them as that you're, you're, you're crazy. Who would follow that guy? Who would follow that person? But in all reality, in the first century, who would follow this Jesus guy? He never wrote a book. He never ruled an army. He never ruled a country. His disciples were unschooled, ordinary men according to their own testimony. Majority of his followers were women, the poor, and the outcasts. And yet there are cities named after him. Time is circulated around Jesus, B.C. and A.D. The very empire that crucified Jesus comes to recognize Jesus' faith, and faith in Jesus is the only legal religion 325 years later. The 12 Steps program come out of reclaiming the practices of Jesus. No Jesus, no 12 Steps. When he died, there were a handful of people following him. Within a couple of weeks, there's 120 in an upper room. They go around preaching that God raised this Jesus from the dead, and that people should repent and follow him, that you should surrender all that you have and give it to the poor, that saying Jesus is Lord means Caesar is not, and it's going to cost you a lot, maybe imprisonment, possibly even death, to which Christians said, but it's blessed to be persecuted. And yet thousands followed him. Within 35 years, Nero is, is killing Christians. A Roman historian tells us that Nero used to cover them in pitch and light them on fire to, 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 to light up his, and decorate and, and illuminate his gardens. Maybe a few hundred die, maybe a thousand. Over the next couple hundred years, emperors will crucify Christians, torture them in unimaginable ways. If you ever read Fox's Book of Martyrs and, and, and seen the descriptions of the, of the way Romans used to invent ways to kill Christians. Yet the movement grew, continued to grow amongst the lower classes, the slaves and the poor. They were known for taking in the orphans and the widows. This movement of a man who was crucified and is dead overtook Rome. Who is this man? There's only one answer. He's Lord. And he tells you to follow me. Lord Jesus, you did this for us. And not only for us, you did it for my brother, 
You did it for our family. You did it for our neighbors. You did it for our coworkers. You did it for our loved ones. You did it for our community. You did it for this world. You did it for the nations. You did it for ISIS. You did it for the Muslim radicals. You did it for the Democrats and Republicans. You did it for the rich and you did it for the poor. You did it for the blind and for those who see. You did it for the well-educated and you did it for those who have no education at all. You did it for us. And you tell us to take up our crosses and follow you. And Lord, we're a little scared of that. We know that men and women around the world today literally have in front of them the possibility that they will have to bear their cross today or tomorrow. This woman in Afghanistan who's maybe going to be released in the next week, Phoebe. The Christians we saw about in North Korea. And so we pray, Father, that you would have mercy and grace, whether it's to free them from death or to sustain them through death. Because somehow, it seems that when we die, the world gets converted. And so be it. Because it's our desire that all come to know you just as we have come to know you. So use us, this congregation, this community, these congregations, Pastor Ricardo's community this afternoon, the Grove this evening. Use us to proclaim the crucified, buried, risen Lord of all creation. And we thank you for making known to us who this man is. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information on the Determined Truth podcast, you can find us on iTunes. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.